Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 28, verses 12 to 31. I'm reading from the NIV version. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regem. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against the sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced among themselves um, by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years... Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord.
Would you join me as we pray for uh, Rebecca? Living God, we are able to love you because you first loved us. Nothing that we could do, nothing that we could muster up can lead us to love you. And so we thank you that you loved us, that you first loved us. And even this moment of hearing your word is an expression of your love for us, you revealing yourself to us. And so we give you thanks for Rebecca that you have equipped her for this very moment. And as she preaches, as she speaks, as she explains what's in your word, help us to sense your heart for us. Help us to feel your heartbeat as we listen. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. I find, as we've been getting back more and more to our normal lives these days after the pandemic, one thing I've really appreciated is the chance to get to know new people again. For a couple years, we were forced just to stick with people we knew in our own bubble or our own circles, and it seemed pretty risky to let um, a stranger into that. But now we're free to meet new people again, to attend social gatherings with friends of friends. And this increased interaction has also meant that we've got to pull out all our old get-to-know-you questions again. One of these, which always seems to be, what do you do? Now, for some of you, this might be a really good question to be asked and might create a point of connection with you and that other person. My sister is a nurse, for example, and whenever she tells people what she does, she gets very positive reactions and might sometimes be thanked for the service that she does. For others of you, this might be a question you find hard or that you even dread. I find for myself, with many new people I meet, I find this is a question that can often end the conversation even before it begins. <laughs> when I answer, oh, I'm a pastor, there's often this uncomfortable silence or a comment like, oh, interesting, and then moving on to talk about something else. Now, the fact that I'm a woman and a pastor does mean that I sometimes get the response of, oh, you go, girl, because it's still like a little bit less common. But I think this shows that the profession of pastor in our society is not the highly respected one it used to be. In the imagination of our society, in the ways that we picture our world, um, and decide which things are generally positive and which things are generally negative, Christians and the church itself are increasingly seen in a negative light. We're associated with intolerance, even abuse, and seen as irrelevant to a changing world. An Angus Reid poll came out just this past April, and it reported that many Canadians now believe that certain forms of Christianity, including Catholicism and evangelical Christianity, are more damaging to society than they are beneficial more damaging than they are beneficial. So rather than there being a social benefit to being a Christian in Canada as there was in the past, there's now a social cost, which maybe some of you have experienced in different ways. Now, I think that the real danger in this is not that public opinion has changed or that the church in Canada has lost its power, after all, Christianity and power have never mixed well. 
and we follow in the footsteps of one who gave up his power, even to the point of laying down his life. But I think the danger might be is that we, even as followers of Jesus, we begin to internalize this negative perception and start to see ourselves in this way as well. If we focus only on the brokenness of the church and not also on the good purposes of God, we might begin to question whether this good news of Jesus is even good news at all. Now, of course, there are things that we as a North American or Western church need to turn from and repent of. But in our selective remembering, we can forget the beauty and the power of our message. We forget our story and our calling and the transforming impact that God has had in our world over the centuries in the midst of different peoples and different cultures. We forget that it was Christians who played a key role in advocating for women's rights, in abolishing slavery, in leading the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King Jr. did, a Baptist minister. We forget Christians like Mother Teresa and countless others whose names we may never know, who chose to live with and serve the poor. We forget that Christians were noted to be a deeply positive presence in society at the time of the early church as well. This is also our heritage. We need to remember who we are as God's people and what our calling is so that we can continue to live this out, knowing that God is still working in our world just as he's always been. Now, our passage today ends our long journey through the book of Acts. And as we've seen this past year, this was also a time when God's people were misunderstood. It wasn't an easy thing to live as a Christian or as a follower of the way, as it was known at that time. Now, the thing that struck me the most in this passage is that the entirety of Luke's two-volume work, Luke-Acts, ends on the single word, unhindered. Now, in the Greek language, word order is really important. It's used to help communicate meaning. So it's not by accident that Luke ended his work in this way and with this word. It's to drive home the point that God's purposes cannot be stopped. So we, of all people, have reason for great hope and optimism. No matter how our circumstances might seem, we have reason to hope because God is present and at work. Now, throughout Acts, we've seen God work in unexpected places and through unexpected people. And today in chapter 28, we're going to revisit some of these same themes and ultimately look at the unhindered work of God. We'll see here again the movement of the message of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, the pattern of some accepting and some rejecting the message, and then we'll bring this back to the theme of being unhindered this unstoppable work of God in bringing his kingdom in our world. And as we look at these themes, I'd like for us to think about what this means for us today. How does this speak to our lives and our place in Vancouver in 2022? And what is God calling us to here as downtown churches? I think the text gives us hints of answers to these questions. So our story starts today in chapter 28, verse 11. If you remember from last week, Paul, having appealed to Caesar, is arrested and taken on a prison ship heading to Rome. 
and they sail straight into a storm. They end up shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and after a three-month stay in Malta, when the winter is over and the sailing conditions are favorable again, they head out on a new ship, this one we're told that has a Gemini figurehead. And they stop at a couple different ports along the way, and finally dock in the Italian city of Puteoli, where they could make their way by land to Rome by means of the Appian Way. In verse, 13, in verse 15, we learn that people have traveled a great distance to welcome Paul. This is the kind of welcome we'd expect for a foreign dignitary coming to visit, certainly not for a prisoner in chains. And what I find interesting in this is to note that Paul isn't bringing the gospel to Rome for the first time. It's already there. Paul himself had written a letter to the Romans three years prior to this trip. He knew people in Rome, and there was already a growing Christian community in that place, evidence of God's work. So Paul is invited to stay a week in Puteoli with some believers there before continuing on to Rome. And when he finally arrives in the Roman capital, he's allowed to live alone with a soldier to guard him. Now, this wouldn't have been a nice Airbnb or a hotel room. Remember, he's still chained by the wrist to a Roman guard. But we learn that this situation gave him much more freedom to receive guests. And this is where we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the text and see how Luke brings his book to a close. In these last paragraphs, we'll see echoes of themes we've already seen in Acts. The proclamation of God's kingdom to all people, a divided response to the message, and yet the unstoppable hand of God in continuing his work. So in verse 17, three days after his arrival in Rome, Paul extends hospitality and invites the local Jewish leaders to come see him. It seems they didn't actually know who Paul was, but the news of the sect that he had been a part of was trending, and they're curious to know more. So Paul tells some of his story. He wants to make sure that they know he hasn't turned against his people and his culture, but it's actually because of the hope of Israel that he's bound with this chain. Paul's message hasn't changed since the time of his dramatic conversion. It was the same message he preached in different cities. It was this message that got him arrested, and it's this message he now speaks to Jewish leaders who've gathered at his rented home. And it's also this message that we speak today, every bit of as divisive as it was 2,000 years ago. And what was Paul's hope? This hope of Israel that he's talking about? Simply put, it was a hope of resurrection, a defeat of death, a hope in a real physical coming back to life, no disembodied spirit floating up to heaven when you die, but flesh and blood. This is referring to the resurrection both of Jesus himself and the promised life given to all peoples who desire to join his kingdom. Back in Acts chapter 26, if you remember, where this whole journey to Rome began, Paul was before King Agrippa, and he said to him, it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. It is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. 
Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? When I was living in Toronto, I worked for a time at the, um, with international students at the University of Toronto. And during this time, I was part of a weekly Bible study on campus with students mainly from mainland China. And I remember they asked me so many questions about what I believed and why. We were doing this study on the life of Jesus and talking about the virgin birth. And they asked me, do, do you really believe that? And also, do you believe that Jesus came back to life after he died? Really? And sometimes when I would speak these truths out loud, it would strike me how strange it all sounds. Does God really raise the dead? I'm certain that friends I've grown up with here in Canada might ask me the same question if they didn't think it was too impolite to ask. But Paul was very aware of how strange his message sounded but he also knew it was true. He had met Jesus and had experienced God's power and the life change that comes along with this. He writes about this in a letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Jews demanded a sign, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. And in 1 Corinthians 2.4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. It's this message that he retells to the Jews who came to see him in Acts 28. From morning till evening, he explains about the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses, and from the prophets, he tries to persuade them about Jesus. You see, the coming of God's kingdom is something that had been promised to the people of Israel for centuries. But it came in a way they didn't expect, not through a great political leader, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This was the means by which God brought his kingdom into our world, to restore the relationship between God and humans to create a new people that crosses cultural, political, and ethnic lines. A people who are called to live in the way of Jesus in our world, and to live in expectation that just as Jesus was brought back to life, so too their lives would not end with death. So how did this group respond to Paul's message? Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And here we see our second theme, a divided response to the message. I wonder if you consider yourself a Christian, what makes you believe that the story about Jesus is true? I've actually had the chance to hear a few of your stories this summer, which has been great. And it struck me that often these narratives of coming to faith don't always involve a well-reasoned argument, but they always include an experience of God. For me, it was seeing God at work in the lives of those around me, seeing how their faith shaped how they lived and, want, and wanting that life for myself. My parents were some of these people. I remember them bringing every big decision to God in prayer, expecting that he would answer. Later, it was my own experience of God that reaffirmed to me this message is true, a work of his spirit in my life. And I find today it's also the church community 
that reminds me of the reality of this message. We are gathered here this morning because we've each experienced God in a different way in our lives. We're a visible reminder to each other of the presence and work of God. I wonder how we can be reminding each other of this truth a bit more. In Don Everett's book, um, I Once Was Lost, he interviews hundreds of people about how they came to faith. And then he compiled it in this book about how people generally come to faith in a postmodern world. And he notes that it's rooted in relationship. It starts in our willingness to share our lives with others, to simply be a trustworthy friend, and to be real about ourselves to those around us, and to let our lives speak in this way. It's like Jesus's parable in Mark chapter four. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. The work of God, Everett's writes, is mysterious. There's no formula to make it happen. It's something that God does. We can tell people the message, but we can't make them believe and it's organic. Coming to faith seems to be something that happens gradually over time as God works in someone's life. And today, like in Paul's time, there will always be a divided response to the message. Back in the Gospels, Jesus tells another another story about planting and growing, about a sower who scatters seed on the ground. He says some of it falls on good soil and the roots go deep and people accept the message, while other falls on the path and the birds eat it up, so the message is rejected outright. And I think that's what we're seeing here in Acts 28. And it's to be expected wherever the story is shared. Go to this people and say, Isaiah wrote, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. But that's not the whole story. And here we see reference to our final theme in Acts, the unstoppable work of God, a work that happens in places that we don't expect and among people we wouldn't even have guessed. In verse 28, Paul declares, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed in Rome in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Unhindered. The book ends in this word, a word that captures the nature of the work of God. Now, it might seem strange that Luke describes Paul's situation as being unhindered. Because after all, he's under house arrest, chained to a guard, and is not able to travel freely. I would describe his situation as actually being pretty hindered. But here we see a deeper truth about his circumstances. God is never hindered in his purposes. And sometimes his kingdom arrives in in ways that we aren't even looking for. Jesus himself brought life to humanity not through a display of strength, but through great weakness. It was in his death that we were given keys to the kingdom. It was through the circumstances of Paul's house arrest in Rome that God worked, through a shipwreck and near and near death experience too. And an arrest that was meant to stop his message actually gave him freedom to share it right in the heart of the empire. 
What did success look like for Paul? Success was seen in the loss of his own freedom so that God's message might be known. This makes me wonder how we measure success in our own lives. If we take Paul or Jesus as examples, success is certainly not seen in gaining wealth or power, but it's more likely found in laying these things down so that God might be seen. Could there be something in our lives that we need to lay down or give up to allow God to be seen? I think this is worth thinking about. This unstoppable work of God is seen throughout Acts. The gospel goes to the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. It moves from Jerusalem to Rome. And even though Paul is in chains, his message is not. For us, what things might seem to hinder or stand in the way of the message of the gospel here in Vancouver? I think like we talked about at the beginning, a general negative perception of Christianity could cause us to feel ashamed of our message. We might allow outside voices to tell us who we are and who God is. We might forget our own story and what it means to be the people of God. But God has always been at work through his people. The sociologist Rodney Stark, for example, wrote how in the first few centuries of Christianity, Christians were known to have lived differently. He notes that during one large epidemic in Rome, it was the Christians who stayed in the city to care for the sick, risking their lives, while most people left loved ones to save themselves. He writes that the status of women was actually higher in Roman times within Christianity. There was a higher age of marriage for Christians. Many women from pagan backgrounds were married at 13, while in Christian circles, 18 was more common. And in a culture where it was common for people to live, leave unwanted babies, especially baby girls, out to die, it was called to expose them. Stark writes that Christians did not expose their children, even though that was the norm. Closer to our own time in the 19th century, it was Christ followers like William Wilberforce who led the way in abolishing slavery. And even the roots of the modern woman's movement is found in the church. It was Christians who made up the bulk of the movement to give women the right to vote in the late 19th century. And they drew their justification from scripture, from Jesus's treatment of women. And it was through the prayerful work of Christians such as Josephine Butler that a foundation was laid for our freedoms today. This is our heritage and our calling. I wonder how might God be inviting us to work for the good of society today? What things might he want us to address? God is always working his purposes in our world, and this gives us a deep and real sense of hope in the midst of all that's going on, a reason for optimism for what God's doing in our city and in our churches. It's always been God's work to bring his kingdom, and he invites us to join him. As followers of Jesus, we can trust that we are cushioned on all sides by the goodness of God. We can rely on his work in our world and trust in the worldview he offers us and the hope he gives us for a future. Like Paul and his companions caught in the storm, sometimes we might feel pushed and pulled by the waves of all that is going on in our world. 
But whenever you find yourself in the midst of debates and storms, you have no reason to doubt the goodness of God or to lose sight of the message of Jesus. This message that, in the fullness of time, God himself pulled on flesh and bones and walked among us as a human. He healed the sick and cared for the poor. He died and came back to life to defeat an enemy we all have in common, death itself so that we too might possess this life that he offers. This truth has been witnessed to by God's people throughout the centuries, by God's spirit who he gives to all who join his family, and by us who are gathered here this morning. This is the story and the kingdom that continues to spread in our world. Now coming back to the questions I asked at the beginning, How does this speak to our lives and our place in Vancouver in 2022? I think that knowing that God's work is unhindered reminds us that we don't need to be afraid of these waves of public opinion or even of the seeming decline of the church in Canada. God worked in Paul's days and he's worked in circumstances far more difficult than we find ourselves in. What we see as limitations and hindrances might actually be opportunities. Maybe our posture could be one of prayerful curiosity, to pray for our cities and our churches with a sense of curiosity or anticipation. What's God going to do this time? And who's he going to do it through? Somehow I expect it won't be in the people and places we think. What might God be calling us to as downtown churches here at First Baptist and Central Presbyterian? I think like he has with Christians throughout the centuries, he's calling us to faithfulness, not to get distracted by things that are less important, but to keep following in Jesus's footsteps, to practice humility, to remember the poor, to forgive even when it's really hard, to offer hospitality, to seek peace with each other, to put aside the popular view of success, a pursuit of power or fame or wealth, and to remember that anything of real significance that we accomplish with our lives will be in partnership with God. We're invited to learn how practically to love each other deeply, even at cost to ourselves. This might look like learning how to welcome newcomers in our midst. When I was growing up, it was common in the church I was at for people to spontaneously invite people over for Sunday lunch. Maybe this is a tradition we could bring back or something like it. I think it also looks like being willing not just to stick with the people that we already know, something that I find really hard as an introvert. C.S. Lewis wrote this interesting essay that's always stuck with me since I read it. And in it, he describes our tendency as humans to always want to be part of an inner circle, to be the people who are in the know, who are on the inside. He writes, unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your life. Any other kind of life, if you lead it, will be result of conscious and continuous effort. If you do nothing about it, you will drift with the stream and you will be, in fact, an inner ringer. I don't say you'll be a successful one, that's as may be, but whether by pining and moping outside of rings that you can never enter, or by passing triumphantly further and further in, one way or the other you will be this kind of person. We are called to live differently, and our aim in Christian community should never be to be part of an in-group, but to make a conscious effort to include others. 
Who might be the people that you would try to include? We're called to be a different kind of community, one that reflects God's kingdom, and in this to show people what God's like. And we're to remember that no matter our circumstance, we of all people have reason for great hope. God is present and at work in our world, in our cities, and in our churches. And his work is today, as it has always been, unhindered. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.